Amen. All right, good morning. Good morning, 1130. Yeah, I just want to second what Steve said. We <clears throat> actually pulled off the live stream this morning at 10 a.m., which is amazing because, I mean, first time you try anything, it's supposed to break. Uh, and it didn't, so it's a miracle. It's a Christmas miracle, everyone. It's amazing. Um, but yeah, <clears throat> here we are. Um, I'm really glad we decided to do two services so that we could uh, be together as a church family. It would have been great to just be all of us in the same room, uh, but when you start like making up volunteer positions to not count in the 25, you, uh, it's like we had like 28 volunteers and 25 people in attendance, and it was like, integrity-wise, I'm not sure we could pull this off. It's like, what's your job? Cleaning. What are you cleaning? This. <laughs> you know? So anyway, here we are. Um, <clears throat> and uh, this year, as I've thought a lot about Christmas, um, I, I, you know, we can say Merry Christmas. We can start kind of enjoying some of the nostalgia and some of the normal traditions and, uh, you know, the eggnog coma that we all crave, um, the classic Christmas movies like Home Alone and Die Hard, uh, because Die Hard is most definitely a Christmas movie. Um, but <clears throat> this year, I have found myself thinking a lot differently about Christmas. And that's because of this year. <laughs> That's because there has been nothing normal about this year. And, and ultimately, there's not going to be very much normal for Christmas. Uh, some of those normal things, the family time, the, the shared moments, the nostalgia that we have connected to traditions and the stories that we tell, some of those things are not luxuries that we will have this year. But it's also an invitation for us to slow down and reflect well. I think that's one thing that's really important about Christmas, one thing that's really important about Advent that we actually get an opportunity to slow down, to look back, to reflect on this year, and to also take stock of some of the things that maybe we had misplaced hopes in things. Some of the disappointments, some, some of the things that didn't come to fruition. Some of the plans and goals that we did have that didn't actually get accomplished. And sit in that tension of celebrating hope, celebrating joy that we have in the gospel, but then also being honest about some of the tensions and some of the disappointments that we are feeling. So the elephant in the room, or the elephant beside the fire this year, or the elephant beside the tree, is that COVID has changed a lot of things about 2020. And if 2020 did anything for us, it magnified what was already there. And I don't think COVID, I don't think 2020 introduced anything new to the equation. I don't think it brought new disappointments. And what it did, though, is it stripped away that layer of insulation that we all kind of live with, and it made us look straight at some of the disappointments, some of the brokenness. Some of the division and some of the, the hate that is just rife with our cultural moment. Some of the political discourse. Some of the idea that we can't even engage in healthy conversations and civil discourse around things that matter anymore. Like we, we literally have lost the ability to do that. And so if COVID has showed us anything, it showed us that we're still broken. That we're still hurting and that we're still hoping. And if we slow down enough and we're honest with our hearts, with our 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 thought world and our, our heart world, it's actually really easy to be discouraged right now. It's really easy. Like it's almost just instinct to be deflated, to be discouraged, to be disappointed, to be negative and to lack, lack hope. Um, and this is all stuff outside of us. I read some stuff on like neurobiologists this week about how uh, it takes three seconds for a negative memory to imprint it on our brain and it takes 14 seconds for a positive memory. So not only is like stuff outside of us working against us, but our own brain is. Like, Merry Christmas, right? Like, like your own brain is working against you being encouraged, right? 
So there's something broken about even the way that our brain is hardwired to fixate on negativity, to fixate on things that, that cause us fear, the things that are disappointing. And honestly, M- Michael Buble's voice can only soothe us so many times with, it's the most wonderful time of the year before we stop and go, but is it? Because this year hasn't been super great, right? It doesn't feel like it's the most wonderful time of the year right now. And many of us have fought this year to celebrate fought to actually kind of move towards joy in the midst of things. And there's lots to celebrate there is. But we're feeling this tension. Many of us have fought for joy all year. And so it's hard for us, some of us, to sing joy to the world right now. It's it's hard for some of us to sing, oh, holy night, a, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. It's hard for us. And so this Christmas, I wanted to give us space to be honest with that. And not just kind of like choose jubilance and Christmas cheer, whatever that is, but to actually slow down and look and see what we have in order to rejoice in, because there really is something that offers true hope, that does offer true joy, that does invite us to rejoice regardless of circumstances. There is that. Now, Starbucks messaged me yesterday on my Starbucks app and said, you need tidings of coffee and joy. And I was like, mm, amen, preach, Starbucks. Right? Starbucks isn't wrong. We do need tidings of coffee and joy. But where we look for hope is ultimately where we will draw our joy. And so this is very important this time of year. Because, church, no one can cancel Christmas. Amen? Like, like no one can cancel Christmas because Christmas is not about any of the things I just said. Like, those things are bonuses. Those things are, like, kind of cherry on top, and those are great. The nostalgia, the eggnog, the ugly Christmas sweaters, Michael Buble, those are beautiful things, right? Soothe me, Michael Buble, right? That, that those are good things, but that's not what Christmas is. Christmas ultimately isn't hinging on any of those things, but it's about the God who has acted in real time to come and save and rescue us from everything that wants to steal our joy. The God of hope that we can rejoice in. The the God that comes and gives us everything we need, which is himself. And the sermon that you and I are going to hear all Christmas season is that all you need is what you want. That's what you need. You just need more of what you want. Then you'll be happy. Then you'll have tidings of joy if you just get what you want. But the deception is that even if we get everything we want, we are still left. We can still be left with the thing that we need most. That's the story of Christmas. And I ran into one of my favorite quotes from theologian and biblical scholar, the Grinch. And he says it this way. The Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons and it came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and he puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas perhaps means a little bit more? Starbucks and the Grinch are right this Christmas. It is about something more, but here's the thing. We all know that Christmas is this strange thing that is Christian that the world celebrates. It's like the one time in the year where we get the world going like, Hey Christians, what do you say? Because the rest of the world are like, shut up, right? But at least one time in the year the world's like, Christians, what do you have to say? And we're just like, Yeah, Jesus, baby Jesus, six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus, right? Here's the problem though. Christmas is not just about the birth of Jesus. It's about why Jesus had to be born at all. 
And if we only look at the details and we ride through a nativity scene and look at the animals and, and then drive away, we've missed the entire meaning of Christmas. The entire meaning of Christmas isn't that Jesus was born. It's why Jesus was born and who he is and what he offers and that restlessness, that not-at-homeness, that us looking for things to hope in ultimately will disappoint if they are not on him. And so in the Bible, there's two gospel biographies that detail the birth of Jesus. We're going to skip a lot of the details because I think we're inundated and just overwhelmed by the details of his birth most years. And both gospel biographies actually spend very little time describing the fact that Jesus was born. Like Jesus, who's had more songs sung to him, more words written about him, more paintings painted of him. He is literally the central figure of human history, and his birth gets eight verses. So the point can't be that he was born. Are you with me on that? It's got to be something more. And this is the beautiful message, the true hope of Christmas. This is what Advent does. It invites us to slow down and sit with the tension of promise that led to Jesus being born. That, that it wasn't the beginning of the story at all. That was when he was born. That's when he stepped into human history. But he is the author of history before that. And there's thousands of years of this tension of promise that someone will come. There will be that thing. There will be that person who will rescue us. In a world of misplaced hopes, there will be someone who will come to give us true hope. That's what Advent's about. That we actually need a rescuer. And the meaning of Advent is, Advent is in the waiting, right? That we're all, all waiting. And honestly, don't ignore that this year. Don't ignore what you're waiting for. Because what you're waiting for, if you're honest with yourself, what you'll see is what you're waiting for, whether it's a future version of yourself or some hypothetical situation of what your investments are going to be or how your kids are going to turn out, or if you just live in this future hypothetical waiting, what you'll realize is you'll start to understand that maybe in that there's some misplaced hopes. And you're actually hoping in circumstances changing, and you're hoping in things that really are temporary, and you're hoping in things that ultimately cannot satisfy you, and they will just disappoint then you'll just make up new ones. That is what we do. That is what our heart does. That is what our culture does repeatedly. So here's what we'll do. we'll do this year. Slow down and wait. We'll wait in that. And we'll actually try to listen to our mind and listen to our, our, our heart of like, what am I actually waiting for? Where is my hope? Because what I hope in is what I will find joy in. What I hope in is what I will truly celebrate. And what I celebrate points to what I think will satisfy me. And that is just the heartbeat of humanity. So Luke 2, we're going to skip the fact that Jesus was born. You all know that. Okay, so he's born. End of story. No, watch this. Luke 2, verse 8 through 12. And then in the same region, close by, there were some shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The Greek is that they were terrified. Sometimes you read scripture and you're just like, I'm really glad that's in there, right? Like you're just hanging out with your animals, chilling, like the shepherds, they're just eating beef jerky by the fireside with their animals, right? And then angels show up, and they're like, they were terrified. Like, why would you be terrified? I would too. Like, it's terrifying, right? They show up in the desert, and they're like, hey, I got a message. You're like, what? And the angel said to them, fear not. That's helpful. It's like, but I'm terrified. No, no, but don't be. Okay. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that you will, sorry, that will be for all people, for unto you. This day, a Savior is born in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. 
you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. There is nothing normal about this story. But what I can tell you is that this story is not about the fact that Jesus was born. The shepherds get more verses than Jesus. So it can't just be about the fact that Jesus was born. It has to be the significance of why he was born. If you notice what happens there, the angels announce this good news of mega joy. It's in the Greek. It's awesome. It's I'm telling you the gospel of mega joy. Right? Just, just, there's just so much joy to be had in what I'm telling you right now about this good news. And he says that the Christ has come. That the Savior, the Lord has come. Those are all divine titles. Those are all things that, that pull back the 300 plus prophecies in the Old Testament about who this person is going to be, what they're going to do, where they're going to live, what they're going to teach, how they're going to be rejected, how they're going to die a substitutionary death and raise from death to be king forever. Prophecies, hundreds of years. And it's told to shepherds. Because the shepherds, if you remember anything about the shepherds in the ancient world, they were kind of the rednecks of the ancient world. Right? So just picture like rednecks hanging out, eating beef jerky, wearing whatever trucker hat or whatever they'd be wearing, right? Hanging out. And they show up to them. Here's what's awesome about this. I just love this because the shepherds were the outcast. The, the shepherds weren't even allowed to testify in court. Like, they weren't seen as upstanding citizens at all. They were thieves and ex-cons, and usually it was the only work that they could find was just being out in the desert somewhere with animals. There was a saying in the ancient world that the only people lower than shepherds were lepers. Not leopards. Lepers. Just like the only thing worse than you is leprosy. It's like, that sucks. But the first time that the Christmas story is told, it's told to the most undesirable people of that culture. It's told to, to the most ordinary people. It's told to the most undesirable people of that time, meaning that this story, this good news, this mega joy that is on offer is not just for the rich and the powerful and the influential. It's not just for the best dressed. It's not for the educated. It's not for the religious people. It's not for morally upstanding people. It's not for those who choose joy and post about it on Instagram. But it's for ordinary people. Ordinary people who aren't even looking for God. Like, they're in the desert, hanging out. They're not looking for God. There's nothing about them that would actually have this good news be on offer for them at all. The shepherds weren't living in the desert, finding their best selves. They weren't living their best life. They weren't maximizing their potential. They weren't saying, 2020 is my year. They weren't doing any of it. They're just being shepherds. And I love that, and we can miss it. But I just love that part of the story. That the Christmas story truly is a rescue mission of a savior. And today, culturally, and especially at this time of year, you and I are pitched saviors everywhere. And I know savior is a weird word until you start looking in our culture and you see that saviors are everywhere. We're pitched all sorts of things that if we only trust in those things, then we'll be validated. If we only trust in those things, then we'll be satisfied. If we only trust in those things, then we'll be affirmed. They're everywhere. It's always something else that we want. That could do that for us. It's always a future hypothetical version of myself. It's always a functional kind of savior. That next life stage. That next job. It's that next promotion. It's, it's that next relationship. It's that next whatever. House. Car. That thing. Whatever that thing is. It's that next thing that will finally rescue me from mediocrity and give me joy. You with me on that? It's everywhere, church. Everywhere. Something to ease the pain. Something to distract us from the brokenness. Something that just promises to, to give us joy. And I love that when the angels show up and announce the good news of mega joy. Um, it's literally in the Greek. It's really interesting. 
they, they say, don't be afraid, don't be fearing, but be watching, be looking, be seeing, because I tell you the gospel of mega joy. Now, some of us still think God is a, a cosmic killjoy. You with me on that? Like, like, we don't think that God coming to us to rescue us is good news. We're like, well, I'll just kind of stay, I'll just do me. How about that, right? Like, we don't actually believe that it is good news. And he says, don't be afraid. And this is crazy, because this is the most repeated command in all of Scripture. Did you know that? It's not like, be holy, it's not obey me, it's none of that. Not like, do this out of duty, it's none of that. It, it's, it's, it's don't be afraid. 366 times we're commanded not to be afraid. That's once for every day of the year, plus one when we need it twice on one day, right? Why, why is that significant? Well, I think because we're afraid. I know it's super profound. This is, why, this is why I do what I do for a living. Because there's actually lots to be afraid of. And I don't like in Christian circles when we sing worship songs or write entire things like fear is a liar. But sometimes fear tells the truth. You with me on that? Like, like, like if I go out to my garbage and there's a family of raccoons waiting to rip my jugular out, like I'm afraid. And the, fra- the fear tells me, go back inside or grab a weapon. Like, my fear told me that. You with me on that? I've been traumatized by raccoons several times in my life. <laughs> I'll tell you stories later. But, like, my fear just told me to get away from, like, I want my jugular in my throat. So, like, get away from them. That's what fear just told me. So I'm like, fear, that's good. I'm going to do that now, right? But fear also can be a really good indicator of some of the things that we are hoping for and have failed us. So I don't think fear is a liar. I think we need to pay attention to what fear does say. And sometimes fear can be irrational. We need to hear what it's saying and then work through it. I'm with you for sure. But, but the fact that this message starts with don't be afraid is not just kind of don't be afraid, don't feel like that. It's always followed up with something else in Scripture. It's always followed up with a promise of God's presence. It's don't be afraid because I'm closer than you imagine. Don't be afraid because I'm here. Don't be afraid because I'm near. Now the kids do this all the time, right? They see something scary, they see a boot in the hallway, and they think it's a raccoon waiting to rip their jugular out, whatever it is. And they're like, Daddy, Daddy, there's something scary. Most of the time, it's completely irrational. And we go there, and nothing's changed about the circumstance except for what? Daddy's with them. That's exactly what God does every time he says, well, don't be afraid of that thing. Don't be afraid of failure. Don't be afraid of, of, of you know, a lack of success. Don't be afraid of not being affirmed. Don't be afraid of that not working out. Why? Because I'm in this. I'm closer than you can imagine. I'm available. I'm here. I've come to you. And the good news here is that, that the king has come. The king has finally arrived. The rescuer has finally arrived. The, the Messiah has finally come. But here's what's interesting. This gospel, this good news of mega joy, doesn't actually start in the barn that day. It started in the garden. It started in the garden at the beginning. Where we meet a God that doesn't just create all things good. But we meet a God that promises hope for the future because he's going to fix everything that's bad. And if you remember the garden story at all, sin and brokenness enters the picture when what? When humanity starts to fear God. So we breach the relationship, we, we disobey, we, we have a, a brokenness between us and God, and then what do we do? We run from him. We hide from him. We're afraid. And what does God do? He pursues. He pursues us. He goes after us. And right from the garden, all the way across history, the refrain, the echo across history is that this God is coming. That this God has come and is coming again. That this God is coming to actually give us hope. And the lie from the garden will be overturned. The lie from the garden is that you need to be in charge of your life. 
that you're the master of your ship, that, that you won't be happy if you trust God because you have a fear of missing out because I can't trust him. Uh, so I'm going to be God for myself. I'm going to enthrone self. I'm going to live for what I want instead of looking and understanding that God gives me what I truly need. That's the lie in the garden. And sin ultimately just dethrones God and enthrones self and it messes everything up in the process. Sin is really just substituting self for God. The good news of mega joy of Christmas is that God actually comes and substitutes himself for us. The result of the, the lie in the garden is that we, we just don't trust God. We're suspicious of his motives. So we go and we look for security and we look for happiness and anything not God. So just hear me on this. The core problem of humanity is not that we do bad things. It's, it's not morality. It's that we want things more than God that ultimately we cannot be satisfied from. That we put our hope in things that ultimately will fall short. That's it. And it's just, it's just right there in the human heart. And if we live like that, we, we live in fear of something not working out. But here's the crazy thing about control over our life. Like we do this all the time. Like you realize there will always be something out of control in your life. You understand that? Like, even if you just, like, you work it all, the money and the relationships and all oh, my kids, and it's like you just get it all, it's like, something will come and ruin it. Merry Christmas. There will always be something out of your control. Nina Simone, one of my favorite soul R&B singers, said, yeah, amen. She said in a famous interview, I'll tell you what freedom is. It's no fear. She's right. That, that, that to, to live in fear, to be afraid, is to actually tie yourself to something else. Something else that ultimately will disappoint. True freedom is no fear because we hinge our entire life and put our whole hope, throw our entire life at the author of hope. The God who will never let us down. The God who has spoken and promised hope across history. And this is the apex of it. This moment. The good news of mega joy. But thankfully in the garden that wasn't the end of the story. Amen? That the story continued. That it ends with a promise in the garden. If you remember, theologians call this the proto-evangelion. Say that one with your eggnog, right? The proto-evangelion. I can't even say it without eggnog. But it's the first gospel. It's the gospel before the gospel. Right? So it's the first time ever that God actually promised a rescuer. Promised to redeem. Promised to reverse the lie that had crept into human hearts. That God can't be trusted, that we need something other than God, or that God's just not there and not real. And that the promise is that he will do it through the offspring and the seed of a woman. And the apex of that is right here. As quickly as sin enters the picture in the garden, God speaks a word of hope and promise. And then he continues to call people back to that promise of hope over history. Century and century, century goes, century passes, time goes, time continues to unfold, and then he delivers on that promise promise. And the Jesus storybook uh, for kids captures it like this. Sometimes you just can't do better than that, right? Grinch and the Jesus storybook Bible. Watch this. Before Adam and Eve left the garden, God whispered a promise to them. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the lies of the serpent. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness that you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. That's Christmas, baby. That's the good news of Christmas. That the good news of Christmas of mega joy isn't that this is for good people. But that it's for those that even though we know at our best, we still need something more. That's what Christmas is about. 
That's the good news of the gospel. That's what this is truly showing us to put our hope in. And I think this really combats against the lies that God can't be trusted and that he is a killjoy. And that's, that's commonly, you know, for people that don't kind of hang with us and run with us in our circles. It's just kind of like God is lame or he's dead or he's not real. He's just a referee blowing the whistle every time we enjoy ourselves. Uh, religious people are usually grumpy. So if that's what they're like, I don't want to be like their God. So I'm just going to go do me. Not knowing that that is just a faith. I mean, that's as much of a faith claim and a trust claim and putting our hope in things as anything else. But listen, if we live without understanding that God is not a cosmic killjoy, but he actually came to get rid of everything that interferes with our joy, then we will never rejoice. We'll never celebrate. We'll continue to look for idols, false gods, things that are not God, that that whisper lies to us, that will satisfy us, when really they never will. They will only disappoint us. God only comes to rescue us from everything that steals our joy. And if we understood that, we would be able to celebrate more. And I'll tell you, I've I've struggled this year to celebrate. There hasn't been much to celebrate. On the surface level, there really hasn't been much to celebrate. And I've had to fight to celebrate. I've had to fight to rejoice. I've had to fight to look for things to actually draw true joy from. Not superficial stuff. Not putting hope in things that just temporarily will kind of make me happy or make me feel good or make me think good thoughts. Those things all pass. They all pass away. The pursuit of happiness of our culture is not working, church. It's not. Because we need more than happiness. We need joy. And here's the difference. Sometimes we think that happiness and joy are the same, but the Bible actually only uses the word for happy 30 times. It uses the word for joy 300 times. They've got to be different. I think happiness is connected to what you want, whereas joy is actually having everything you need. That's the difference. Um, C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. Like, I think he's right. Like, after this, like, after the shepherds run into this and get this announcement of the good news of mega joy, the angels just burst into song. They're just like, we're going to sing a song now. And then they just sing, glory, right? Like, this is, uh, that's not probably, they sounded way better than that, right? But they just burst out into song because there's so much joy about this. Carl Barth said that the Trinity radiates joy. She's like, if there's any signal, Wi-Fi signal coming from the Trinity, it's joy, Right? And listen, we're pitched all sorts of things that promise to give us happiness, but we need more than happiness. James K. A. Smith, reflecting on this, says, Our society has tried to trick us into thinking that en- being entertained and having joy are the same things. He's right. Entertainment and distraction have become the centerpiece of our culture. Because we've, we've, we've thought that, well, it's just, it's just like that, that next season. It's that next binge, it's that next whatever, it's that, that next thing that will really satisfy, give me joy. But ultimately they don't, and then we just make up new ones, and we move into the next thing without slowing down enough to realize what's actually going on in our heart. And I think honestly, what, what we celebrate most is what shapes us most. I mean, you are what you love. You are what is at the center of your life. You are what you celebrate. And so this is a big deal. So the question is, how do we experience that? How do we experience this gospel of mega joy? The good news of mega joy. Well, I found myself looking at the Apostle Paul a lot. Because if there's anyone next to Jesus who understood what it was like to experience joy in the midst of hard stuff and tough stuff, it was Paul. And I just love, like, Paul will say stuff about rejoicing. Like, rejoice, always, right? And you're kind of like, yeah, easy for you to say, Paul. You wrote the Bible, right? But then you look at where Paul was at. He's like penning that from jail after getting bit by a snake out of a fire pit. 
right? Like after getting flogged, after getting publicly ashamed, after having his head almost chopped off. And then he, by the way, does actually have his head chopped off, right? Like this is a guy who's like sitting in a five-star hotel telling us to choose joy while posting on an Instagram with their, with their mansion, right? I love those people. Choose joy. There's a Babylon Bee article showing us that um, celebrities lined up all of their yachts from above to say that we're in this together. And they spelled out with their yachts, we're in this together. Like we chuckle, but literally, that's it, right? It's just like all the people are just sitting around enjoying everything. Just like, no, just choose joy, right? It's just like, what? But then Paul does it. But Paul can. Because Paul actually doesn't have any of the circumstantial stuff. Any of the, the happiness and the things that are just going really well for him. He's none of it. And he's telling us to rejoice and then saying, and I'm worried for you guys. Right? Like I just love it. Watch, watch what he says in Philippians 4. Verse 4 through 7. This is like a tutorial on joy. Joy 101. Watch this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Be full of joy in the Lord. Always. Always. Never not a time where you can be full of joy. I say it again. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. We need that like on our social media platforms. Let's just show everyone that we're reasonable. Please. Please start doing that. The Lord is closer than you think. He's near. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding and circumstances, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. I love that he starts and he just says, rejoice always. And you're like, well, okay. It's kind of weird to command a feeling, right? Like it's like telling your kids to go to sleep. It's like, go to sleep now. And they're like, okay, not. It's not happening, right? It's just weird to, to command something like this unless there's a choice to be made in it. You can't, you can't command a feeling, right? Like, you can't tell me, like, Dustin, don't be afraid of the raccoons looking to chew your jugular. It's like, but I am, and I'm not going to listen to you now, right? Because you can't command a feeling, but you can command something that requires a choice. But it's weird to hear that. Uh, but I think that joy is commanded because it is a choice. Not to change how we feel, but to change where we're looking for hope. That's what joy is. It's to actually change and fight and discipline ourselves to hinge and celebrate what is unchanged by the circumstances of our life. That's why I think it can be commanded. That we can actually change our gaze, set our gaze on something else that really does offer joy. That really does offer hope that cannot be changed by anything. One of the best definitions of joy I've ever heard, and it stuck with me, is that joy is an act of defiance. Joy is a defiant nevertheless. So that joy isn't just circumstances changing around me when everything is, the weather's perfect, my money is perfect, my house is perfect, my marriage is perfect, my kids are perfect, then I can celebrate and be joyful. No, 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 no. Joy is a defiant nevertheless so that even when none of those things are working, I can say nevertheless. And I can hinge and I can celebrate and I can look to where the true source of my joy is. It's saying in spite of everything, regardless of everything, even if nothing changes. Joy is not a positive emotion. It's not a feeling that comes and goes. It's a discipline to keep our eyes on the God of hope. Because all he has spoken from the beginning is only what is good. And only promising hope. It's not just, don't worry, be happy. Joy is something available to us despite whether we feel worried or happy. 
And I just love what Paul does here. The connection is beautiful. I know New Age stuff, is, self-help stuff has hijacked this from the Bible, but um, the idea of being grateful for things, like presently living in gratitude, they're like, 15 seconds a day, just, you know, meditate on gratitude and it'll change your life. It's like, yeah, you're right, but that's because God did that. Like, that's what God did. What Paul just said there is he just said, like, don't be worried, but, but be grateful. Like, like, like be, experience gratitude in the present for all that you do have that you can celebrate. Because there's so much. There's so much. But if we only celebrate for the sake of celebrating because we want to be happy, it's the wrong goal. We celebrate for the sake of celebrating the God who has gifted us with all of those amazing things. Then we can rejoice. Amen? Then we can experience joy because he is the one that is given to us. Although, even if we're sad, even if there's circumstances that are not ideal, and there's a lot of them, we can still experience joy. 2 Corinthians 6.10 says, Although saddened, this is Paul, by the way, although sad, we are always rejoicing. That doesn't make any earthly sense. Not at all. Can you imagine that self-help book? (laughs) Right? Although sad, we're super happy. You'd be like, I don't understand. That's because it's not, it is out of this world. Because it, it, like, you know that joy is a fruit of the Spirit? You catch that? Like, joy is a fruit of the Spirit, meaning it doesn't come from you. You can't conjure it up within yourself. You can't choose joy like that from the inside. You can't go and turn inward and, and kind of manufacture that for yourself. You can't because it's a fruit of the Spirit. And without the Spirit, there is no joy. Because without a relationship with the God of hope and peace and joy, we cannot experience true joy. And here's the crazy thing. 18 times in the New Testament that joy is mentioned, it's mentioned in the same sentence as suffering. And there's one thing this year did, is it stripped away some of the insulation. And actually showed us, exposed, some of the foundations of our life. It's exposed some of the things that we really have put our hope in. And ultimately, it's failing. Paul again goes on to write, makes this key connection for us in Romans 15, 13. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy. See how, see the connection between hope and joy there? Future hope and present joy and peace in believing and trusting so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. All over scripture, church, joy comes from properly placed hope. If we reflect on this year, what you will see is you will see misplaced hope. If you pay attention to some of the things you've hoped for, pay attention to some of the things that if only this, fill in the blank, what you may see is that those things were actually things that you misplaced your hope on. Joy is properly placed hope. It's actually shifting our attention from what is out of our control to what is in the present and being grateful for it and thankful for it. So, C.S. Lewis one more time. Merry Christmas. says, all joy reminds us of something. It's never a possession. It's always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. I love that. Only C.S. Lewis could nail that, right? Your true object of faith is at the end of the sentence, I hope that. If only that. So this is not a question of religion or or non-religion. It's a question of trust. It's a question of hope. True hope, though, is looking to God and saying, regardless of how this turns out, regardless of how I'm feeling, I have something we're celebrating now. It's a defiant nevertheless. Nevertheless, I'm going to choose to trust you in this. 
But don't get it twisted because hope is not wishful thinking. It's not optimism. It's not positivity. It's not an unrealistic idealism. Just being idealistic. That doesn't help either. It's not just like hoping that things work out somehow. That's not hope. Hope is a deep, decided, personal trust in the God who is the author of hope. And the good thing about this time of year is we get to look because this hope, true hope, is not based on probability and maybe things working out. Or taking, you know, is there going to be a return on my investment of time or energy? Like it's like, oh, probability. This is a hope built on promise. Misplaced hopes are built on probabilities. There's no guarantee. We're not even guaranteed tomorrow. But true hope is built on promise. So as we, a- as we reflect, I want to ask, as we respond, as we sing, we're going to celebrate, we're going we're to rejoice together today as we close. I want to ask a couple questions. When you look at this year, when you consider all of the challenges that have come, all of the misplaced hopes that maybe were there, what have you hoped in and hoped for most this year? Maybe you already realized that that didn't materialize. But if you're honest with yourself, what, what did you hope for most? What are you hoping for more, most for, for 2021? Are any of you posting that 2021 is going to be your year? I haven't seen it yet, you know? No one's doing that. They're like, I, I don't know. No year is my year, right? But when you think about 2021, what are, you, what are you looking to for hope? What are you hoping for? Because if you slow down enough and ask that question, you will find misplaced hope. You will find that you have looked to something else to ease the pain, to distract, to self-medicate, to satisfy kind of that deep ache of our soul, to get rid of that like just low-grade hum of anxiety and worry and unknown, or just a deep sense that you're missing out on something, that something is not quite full. And maybe you've put it on a person. Maybe you've put it on a relationship. Maybe you've put it on a leader or a government. Maybe you've, you've put it on a, an ideology or a system or a public figure or a celebrity. Maybe you have just continually pushed it into the future and said, like, that, that is where I can put my hope. It's going to be a, a future success. It's going to be a, a future goal. It's going to be a, a future promotion. It's going to be a future milestone. That's what I can hope for. See, Christmas invites us to slow down and wait in the tension of the already and the not yet. But it specifically reorients us to the God who comes and announces good news of mega joy to be experienced in the tension because he is the God of promise. The Savior has come and is coming Again. And I love how Luke's Christmas story ends right here. And it ends with the shepherds. The shepherds' reaction to this announcement of mega joy. It says that they left in awe of God. They left in awe of God. Like, like, not, like not the fact that angels just sang to them. You with me on that? Like, it's like, I, I would have been like, is this bad beef jerky? Like, I don't know what's going on. Like, angels just sang, right? But that, you know, they left in awe of God for what they had seen and heard. What did they see and hear? Well, they saw God. And they heard the gospel and they left changed. So church, this year, just like it's always been true every other year, just like it always will be for eternity, fully and truly, Jesus came to fix what's broken in the world. And if 2020 showed us anything at all, anything redeemable about this year, it's that we are still broken. That we still live as broken people in broken systems, in broken governments, with broken ideologies, with broken families, with broken marriages, with tribalism, with racism, with division, with war, with greed, with violence. That's the world. So let's not look to 2021 as the solution to 2020. 
Let's not look for the pandemic to end or the restrictions to be lifted to put our hope in that. Let's not look for purchases and possessions and stuff and named brand things and gadgets this year to do it because it won't. Let's rejoice in the Lord. Let's receive the good news of mega joy that's offered in the God who sees you, the God who loves you, the God who came to you, the God who knows you fully and has fully purchased you and laid his life down to make the great exchange that we made, the tragic exchange in the garden. Let's choose joy because God has come to rescue and save us. Amen? Let me pray for us to that end. God, just like in the garden, you didn't leave us without a promise of hope. That that you promised you would fix things. Fix things that we broke. Fix things that we chose. And you have done that exclusively through the work of your son, Jesus. That is what Christmas is about. And that is why this is good news of mega joy. That we can celebrate that we don't have to be afraid. That we can celebrate that we don't need control of our life. That we can celebrate that we don't need control of the future because you are already there. So Lord, as a church, as individuals, I pray that this season would be one of reflection, one of slowing down, one of actually thinking through some of the things that we have hoped for this year and taking them off of those things and reorienting them onto you so that we can rejoice, so that we can actually experience joy that is true, joy that is unshakable, and joy that is ultimately wrapped up in the fact that we are known, fully loved, fully forgiven, and fully welcome to be changed by you. We love you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.